G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast Summer Edition. Uh, not very summery in Melbourne this morning, but that's a good thing. We need plenty of rain, and we've certainly had a bit of it again. Wild old weather going on, as we all know, and we've talked about most of this summer. Um, it is uh, post-Australian Open morning, so we will talk a bit about that as uh, and a lot of other things too, our regular segments. Plenty of footy to talk about, of course. That's why it's called Footyology. As I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Fine? I'm well. Good morning to you and all our listeners. Now, as a sort of a gnarly, wizened old football journalist, yes. do you subscribe to football season for a journalist starts... After the match point is won in the men's final at the Australian Open. Basically, it swings now, focus now swings to football. Traditionally, I would say that has been the case. However, I would say in recent years, uh, such has been the saturation coverage of football, that there isn't actually an off-season. There is always something going on in the footy world, whether it's trades or the draft or the fixture release or... Uh, phony debates about various things, one of which we'll talk about shortly. Are you, or, are you suggesting um, an, an intentional sort of drip feed even through the non-football period by the AFL? Abs- to- absolutely, I am. And it, it's they're quite open about it. I think it is an intentional um, feed. And, and through to really massive stories like Andrew Walker wearing a hat at Carlton Training, which is... Uh, a uh, story, not apocryphal, it actually happened, but that has achieved legendary status on the uh, Bigfooty fan forums. And uh, big hello to everyone who reads Bigfooty. Of course, we have a footyology thread on that, and we thank everyone who listens to that and contributes and suggests and whatever. We've also got some very generous sponsors, Finey, and like you to give them a very big plug right now. Burger me, baby. I'm actually wearing the T-shirt. You are. You're Andrews. It reads, Andrews Traditional Hamburger Grill, Melbourne, established 1939. That's a long time ago, isn't it? It's actually a, a very important year. It's the year that the Second World War broke out. Well, it is. And I wonder, like in the context of um, fast food in 1939, I reckon hamburgers would have been pretty cutting edge, wouldn't they? Um, that's what I was thinking. This It would have been... Um, was a, I know that hamburgers by name and by dint have a German origin, but very much the American-style burger, I think, is what we now embrace, yeah. the big buns, etc. It must have been cutting edge back in the day, Well, I because can, they haven't changed it much. No, and I can just imagine all those American troops who were stationed at the MCG on their way to the G to... Uh, to imagine, <laughs> that, imagine how many burgers they consumed. They would have done a roaring trade. I wonder oh. how many babies were conceived after a, a night out at Andrew's Hamburgers and uh, a pop down to the, um, what do they call it, the, uh, the soda pop shop. Or oh, back, to, back to the barracks with some poor Australian lass. Before they went to the sock hop 
<laughs> Whatever. That's more like happy days, isn't it? Anyway. Well, they and, would have had a great burger. But uh, they are the finest burgers. We all know this. Uh, uh, sumptuous buns. You know I'm big on the buns. Tender meat patties. Uh, lettuce and tomato. The water just dripping off them. Dripping with freshness. I don't know if water dripping off them is well, conducive just, to a... But they, they are... Yeah, not crisp, when it's on the burger. Crispy, yeah. fresh. You, you can picture it. You know what I mean. And you, they you, do. You're seeing that shot in slow motion with the water just tumbling off the sliced tomato. <laughs> you're a, you're a real um, buyer of the that concept ad from like other burger places. Actually, just before you go, I'll tell you what's really worrying. Like last night, um, Declan Fay, it was. He's a, a Melbourne comedian. He posted um, an old ad from 1981 for Hair Fusion. And I saw it, and str- and I played it, and you know what re- is really disturbing? I hadn't seen that ad since 1981. I knew every word. Really? Yeah. Strand by strand. What'll they see when I walk through the door and they really see the change? Well, that's okay. What'll she say when we meet tonight? Hair fusion puts you right on top. Hair fusion. And it was a really ordinary looking rug, I've got to say. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Uh, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park for the best burgers. And to me, the sign of a, a restaurant, yes, 80 plus years old is a pretty good indication, but... It's always busy, and the turn they really, you don't wait long, but the fact that they're always busy means all the food's fresh because they're constantly turning it over. Best burger in town, and the best uh, renovators, builders in town are? A slight change here. Same man, same brilliant service, same wonderful quality construction, but now Nick Bartels is West Point. Ooh, what's happened there? Construction. What happened to Hardwick? His laptop to, didn't open. Gone, yeah. <laughs> gone to Port Adelaide on the way to Richmond. I'll tell you what happened to Nick Spartels during the week, and I had to get clearance to tell this what happened, okay. to repeat it. He was uh, in York Street in that area. Yep. Uh, in his black ute, uh, I think doing some pre-inspections for some construction work. I don't know why, but I thought you were then going to say doing some burnouts or something. Well, the word burn is correct because oh. he saw... Smoke coming from oh, no. the second story of an apartment building. Oh, no, that's not good. And people had started to gather, and then there were some sort of screams, some desperate screams. Really? And he ran into the building. Jesus. He was able to convince, basically, and drag or, or grab a 70-plus-year-old woman who was trying to disconnect her computer. And he said... You've got to get out at that point. But he said the heat was incredible and it was clearly a fire in the adjacent apartment. Mm. But her apartment was starting to fill with smoke. It was only a matter of time. Sadly, the person in the apartment next door um, didn't survive. Oh, Jesus. I didn't hear that story. But he was able to bring her downstairs. um, And Nick said, you know... At that point, fire brigade were turning up. You know, that, that was pre-even the fire brigade wow. and police. He hopped back in his ute. He had, said he had stuff to do. He didn't want to make a fuss off it. But he did want to know, because at that point, he didn't know what had happened yeah. in the flat next door. So he came back uh, three or four hours later, and because uh, there had been a fatality, there was still a, a strong police presence, and, a, and a, uh, they roped the area off or taped it off, as they do. And when he arrived, all the, the police made a beeline to him because everybody had made this statement that this guy in a, a black T-shirt uh, 
in a black you know, a Commodore Ute describing, SV Ute describing uh, his vehicle had heroically saved this woman. And they made a beeline to him. Have you been here previously? So Wow, well done, that, Nick Spartel. So well done, Nick. He, he, that is, no, um, no, we're not being uh, facetious. That is incredible. I do believe he's... Bravery. And somebody else told me not... He filled in the details of the story, but... Uh, Another person, because he didn't forward this information, uh, said he'll be up for those citations they have at the end of the year. Deservedly so. Yeah, uh, well, well done. So the uh, new name of Nick's... West uh, Point Constructions. So Nick Spartels and, or is it just... Nick Spartels. Uh, Rest Point or West Point? West Point. West Point. I believe, yes. Okay, not Rest Point. That would be the, the casino casinos. down in Hobart. Correct. All right, very generous sponsors they are and have been for a long time in this show. Okay, uh, plenty of news to talk about. Let's do that right now. On Footyology, News Feed. All right, well, you mentioned before, Finey, that uh, Australian Open ends and, uh, ends and that's sort of the, uh, I guess, start of everyone focusing their attention on the footy. But And a bit different because we have AFLW now, so that immediately dovetails. And starts uh, Friday night, I think. Um, Carlton Richmond? Uh, yes, at Icon Park. Um, so potentially another lockout crowd there, I would have thought. But, uh, yep, looking forward to that. And some uh, news during the week, or, or non-news, or non or news which became non-news. Um, and I speak of the uh, mooted shortening of the half-time break from 20 minutes to 10. And after all that speculation, and was it going to be 10, and then it was going to be 15, and should it happen, and uh, discussion of average toilet times and, and food uh, food purchasing times and whatever, it's not going to happen. Um, so I must admit the cynic in me wonders whether that was actually ever going to happen or whether um, they're just taking the piss. What do, what do you think? I think it was a kite-flying uh, exercise. exercise, that's the word I was looking for, that was put out in the public space to gauge reaction. They, Of course, the AFL has a lot of commercial partners. It's not just the TV, that the broadcasters that need to be accommodated. Stadium, Stadia, have a vested interest in the competition and their caterers as well. And it's my understanding that there was strong lobbying on behalf of uh, all of those financial partners to maintain the 20-minute break because cutting it by any period would have a major impact on the bottom line of food sales at half-time. It's simply a, a nature of the beast that people don't like missing the game and they basically buy up at half time and the less time that they have to do so would be detrimental to those commercial partners. Well, the first thing I thought when I heard it was, oh, the broadcasters will be pissed off about that because it's obviously cutting down potential advertising uh, time. And um, one of the uh, one of those broadcasting partners, someone there was, I think, trying to convince people that, uh, no, they're actually happy about it. And I never quite... Yeah, no, I think it did come from them originally, that they felt that there was a loss of eyeballs because of the length of the break, that uh, either channel surfing or... or Basically, it was too long a break and that they would be happy with a shorter break. Same amount of commercials and also less need for their talent to be uh, required to do a segment in between. In other words, that they could probably get by with a shorter break, not having their commentators having to go to camera. Which I, I think 
misses the big picture, which is um, they're losing eyeballs overall because um, they broadcast complete shit. The game shit or the way they broadcast No, no, I'm talking about television in general. I mean, last night, you know, I was watching the Australian Open last night and uh, it was an ad for a current affair and it was a, a huge thing about um, they were going to interview all the stars of Married at First Sight. So, uh, you know, actually made me start pining for the days when they were still chasing Foot sho- door. shonky salesmen down back alleys and stuff. You know, like, So you don't like... TVs. You don't, like, you don't like in-house promotions or the now de rigueur. And tonight we looked at the best cruise ship options and, and going on a cruise, which we just paid for ads. Well, I'm still recovering. There was a point during the Open where I was about to tweet something about Married at First Sight, and then I remembered the Here Come the Habibs debacle finding of 2016 where they kept plugging that show, and I facetiously tweeted, can't wait. And they used my tweet in a promo in a non-sarcastic manner. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah I don't know that story. <laughs> yeah, I've, got, I've still got the still. Can't wait, Rowan Connolly. Yeah, no, sarcasm doesn't translate very well on Twitter finding, unfortunately. So you should just send one now for all those shows. Can wait. Anyway, so the, uh, the, the shorter halftime break didn't happen. And... To get back to that thing, yeah, they, they absolutely just put stories out there to make sure they're in the consciousness, whether yep. they're positive or, or negative or what. But, yeah, I'm, I, I think I'm pretty over it, to be honest. Although, actually, there hasn't been that many kites flying this year, although it's probably we're probably due now the old night grand final, um, perennial night grand final one again. Yep. Um, what, what are the other ones they usually do? Oh, no, State of origin. Well, the, this yeah, well, we're having gone beyond now, the flying we? of kites. Anyway, so that that was probably the um, the major AFL news during the week. So we talked injuries last week, and there's been a few more over the last week or so. And um, probably the ones that caught my eye and do have some potentially some ramifications. Isaac Heaney broke his thumb uh, on the track with the Swans. He's out for four weeks. Should be right for round one, but still four weeks you don't want to lose. And hopefully, purely coincidentally, this came uh, about 24 hours after I interviewed Isaac Heaney for a season preview thing I'm doing for a certain sports magazine. So um, sorry, Isaac. You'll probably never talk to me again. Um, the other one, uh, Melbourne, uh, was rather anxious for a while there on Friday afternoon, I think it was. There, they had a training camp at Maroochydore, and Big Maxi Gorn uh, strained his medial ligament, and I think that's going to keep him out of training for about four to five weeks. Yep, and that means that even if he's ready for round one as a ruckman. He's going to be underdone, isn't he? For a uh, or two. Yeah. Look, I mean that. You know, the bulk of that sort of fitness, um, you know, miles and legs stuff happens pre-Christmas. So, yeah. Look, it's it's certainly not ideal. Um, the other one, uh, which didn't seem to get as much airtime, but I did see there was uh, Camden McIntosh, also on a training camp. I can't remember where Richmond were, um, but he uh, rolled his ankle. Won't have surgery, but isn't again, he at Fremantle? Camden McIntosh. I thought he'd gone. No, that was Reese Conquer a year ago. Oh, okay. Did you really? Yeah, I thought. I thought they'd. Just... Why would you admit that on the pot? <laughs> Why wouldn't you just sort of pretend like every other footy journo that you got the finger on the pulse? I thought he'd left. No, he hasn't left. He's still very much a part of their plans. I mean, I don't mind him as a player at all. And he again 
wasn't far off that premiership team, played in 2017. Anyway, he's off the track for probably a month or so as well. Um, the other news, uh, Gold Coast uh, sticking with the co-captaincy model. So that will be David Swallow and uh, Jared Witts. I was about to say Andrew Witts there, who played for Collingwood in about 1985. With a very high number on his back. 65, and he played a couple of good games, and then they uh, gave him 49. Yes. <laughs> he was working his way down. I interviewed him too uh, before he played his first game. But uh, Jared Witts, David Swallow, and they were both excellent for the Suns last year. And I had a chat to David Swallow during the week too. So look out, David. Uh, you're probably going to get hurt during training this week. That's no good. Um, that's about it for footy news. Uh, of course, we need to discuss the Australian Open. Uh, big five-set final Last night, there were stages there where it looked like uh, Dominic team was about to uh, break the, uh, not drought, break the duck and record his first win in a Grand Slam tournament. And be the first player from the 1990s. Correct. To yeah. win a Grand Slam. Post 88, I think no one. Um, That's born, the year born in. Yeah, some amazing stats on that too. I did, I spent about 20 minutes sort of adding all these numbers up and going through it for some reason, but... Um, between 2004 and 2019, there were 64 Grand Slam titles on offer. For, Seven winners or something? Um, no. Uh, well, hang on. Let me get to the headlines. So of the 64, 54 were won by three men, and yeah. they, of course, were? Djokovic, Federer, Nadal. Correct. Um, the other 10 were won by six, me, yeah. six players. Well, let me see if I can. Can I try, have a go at them? Uh, okay, well, six of the ten were won by two. Yep. So okay. who were they? Okay, so doubles were Vavrinka and... More, uh, than, more than a double. Uh, yeah. Three. And, oh, okay, and yep. Andy Murray. Three, yep. which leaves four. Yep. Um, Do you want to have a go Silic. at them? Chilich. Yep. yep. One, one. Um, oh, there's a guy who won the... F- Won one of the French. He was there last night, presented the trophy to Djokovic. I didn't hang around for Safan. Marit Safan, of course, with the with the entourage. Yep. Uh, and two more, and uh, one of them. American. An Argentinian clay quarter, and I've yeah. forgotten his name already. Uh, starts with G. Okay. Um, and uh, the Argentinian, uh, Del, Del, Port- Del Potro. Del Potro. Del Potro. He won Wimbledon. Uh, did he? Yep. What year was that? I don't know. He just had he won Wimbledon one year. Well, I think. You, yeah, I don't think he did. I think I think it was the French. Anyway, um, so so how many is that? That's six players. Yeah, so nine players have shared all sixty-four of those yeah, titles. Yeah. Anyway, and compare f- that to the women. It's oh no, it's now fifty-five out of sixty-five. But. Yeah. Um, Tim, the the Tim is coming, I think, for Dominic because he's lost two French finals. But he was up to his old tricks, Djokovic. Yeah, doing the injury timeout. He do- Gee, he's not popular, is he? he? Wasn't wasn't it a muted reception when he won? He used to look. He he understands better than most players how set scoring works. It doesn't matter if you lose two sets drastically, and if he. F- He's done this before. He used to do it earlier, earlier on in his career. Mm. If he was losing a set in a final or a semi-final, you'd think he was, do- you know, he was feigning injury. He was distressed, dis- mental, you know, f- collapsing. He's not collapsing. He's pl- what he's trying to do is 
build up a false sense of achievement and security in his opponent. It's a good tactic. Or, or, bit... or just make him nervous because he's two sets to one up and thinking, geez, I'm nearly there, I'm nearly I'm saying that's, what he, yeah. that's his psychology is making his opponent feel that I've almost won this game. He, no, you, no, you haven't. He, he was popping a tablet, though. What do you reckon? Was that a placebo or something, was it? You can have an aspirin or a maybe, Panadol. Maybe it was a Tic Tac. Um, it was a tactic. But I, it's, <laughs> that's very good. Oh, that, that is good. Sorry, I, I didn't show I had to that congratulate to myself after my Camden Macintosh. Yeah, business. no, no, that was good. Um, I, I I knew he wasn't, you know, in the same league as Federer and Nadal in terms of popularity. But my my impression prior to last night was that, oh, you know, people had warmed to him and he'd, he could have a laugh and blah, blah, blah. But certainly didn't feel that last night. Of course, people want, were um, barracking for the underdog, but there was a real... Yeah, I thought he got a really muted. Okay, he's not popular. Reception. He's not popular at the U.S. French Open or Wimbledon, but he does have a big following here because, as you know, nationality support is very strong in Australia, and the Serbian community get right behind him. Yeah, but that is much more difficult at the final, where the tickets are expensive and hard to get. So they were all out in the um, garden area, or so whatever was, they call. So that big cheer squad wasn't there, and. He he took umbrage at that at one point, didn't he? Tell the audience to Barry Carter or something. Yeah, I said something to them like you, you know, it was a. Or well, he he was fairly condescending towards the umpire too, patting he him on the him. shoe. <laughs> he touched and, the umpire and um and then saying uh, you you make yourself famous or something. <laughs> anyway, look, eighth title, pretty amazing effort. So yeah. uh, you can't take that away from him. Uh, but I will, no, you cannot. You can keep it. Yeah, no, correct. I will be talking, expanding on uh, that theme a little bit later on. All right, we've been reviewing three AFL clubs um, every week in our newsfeed segment, and time to do three more. Finally, one from each uh, of the three. Oh, I forget it. Eastern Board States. No, no, one from. If you go. Through the 18 teams alphabetically, one from each third of the ladder. So this week we're talking about Brisbane, North Melbourne and Sydney. And let's start with uh, undoubtedly... Mark the, Roberts will enjoy this segment. Uh, the did he end up at Sydney, did he? He played for all three of those teams. I can't remember him playing for Sydney. Um, anyway... Uh, the boom team, the good news story of 2019, Brisbane, amazing rise going from 15th to second on the ladder after home and away games. Of course, their official finishing position, unfortunately, was, uh, oh, here we go, fifth um, because they got knocked out in the second week. But the big question, we see a lot of teams come from nowhere and then slip back just as quickly, a.k.a. Melbourne last year. What do you think is going to happen with Brisbane? All right, on the there's... Pluses and minuses heading into this season from last year in terms of can they maintain it. Plus, some young players really arrived, announced themselves as uh, lock-in, future, talented footballers. We, we, we like what we see from their younger brigade. Charlie Cameron was an excellent recruit for them. Witherden, I felt, found a, a, a better use for himself than just the go-to man to kick. Yeah, so just, just, sorry, just on Cameron. That was his second year. Second year, yeah. um, So this is a side that was able to... I, I think we saw the arrival of McLuggage as a 
serious midfielder, and I think that he will only... He carried him. <laughs> no, he didn't. He, he was carried. No, he wasn't. But he... I think there's more improvement in him, which is... Yep. Starts to get into the, not scary category, but gets into the Simon Black category, because he, he does bear some similarities. Beautiful mover, beautiful user. Well, they got great uh, drive out of both their wingmen. So McCluggage on one wing, and then Mitch Robinson really had a great year, fantastic and, and, year on a, on and, the other wing. And I don't think that was a one-off. I think he's capable of that, and he's a more mature man now. The not the downside, but the harder thing to maintain is that great run they had with injuries, and they really were of. All the teams are standout in that department. Well done to their medical department. Maybe the bodies of these men uh, are sturdier, and that does happen. But you can't bank. Their their strike rate for players playing each week was much higher than the median in the competition. You can't bank on that. So that might bring them back a little. I think that they're a top eight team. Maybe the bottom half of the top eight for me. I'd say... Um Big hats off to their recruiters. The way they've targeted specific players from other clubs. I mean, Hodge, you know, what he gave them in two seasons uh, in terms of examples as much as on-field stuff is invaluable. But Happy with his replacement? uh, Yeah, well, I was going to mention that. Yeah, look, provided he's okay, and you assume they've done plenty of medical stuff on him. Grant Birchall, you know, it's easy to forget sort of how good a player he was at his peak. So... Um, he can certainly replace that sort of drive off halfback. Ellis Yolman is an interesting one too because he was always sort of, you know, second fiddle, I guess, as a midfielder at the Crows and, and started to really show something, I thought, the last couple of seasons. Really, really strong beautiful body. body. Beautiful dimensions for the modern midfielder. Yeah, so I, I reckon he could surprise people too. Big body, small tank has been his problem. But, but in terms of um, their targeting of players, I mean, what about last year? So they got Lockie Neal, one of the best and fairest in his first season. Now, he was always going to be a good pickup, but he was just fantastic for them. And Jared Lyons, who we've talked about a bit here. I mean, how, how the hell did Gold Coast let him go? That was just insane. How about the... And McCarthy. The, how about the, the great McCarthy well, with that famous mark and yeah. match-winning goal? But just the way that, you know, like he'd spent, what, eight years or something, sort of... And Geelong knew he was good, so not having a, a go at them, but it yeah, but, sort of but, all came together for him. But but he really was stagnating at Geelong, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, true. But, I mean, sometimes it's not necessarily the club's fault. It's just sort of a convergence of factors. Yeah, yeah. not the environment. The, the, you're right, the, the sum total of injuries and opportunities. He needed the break and took it. And I'll give you a good example of that with our next club, actually. Another person I caught up with... Um, and had a chat too during the week. Um, they they play a good brand too, Brisbane. Uh, at their best, you know, quite uh, quick movement of the footy. My one, my reservation perhaps is that most of the cream is in that sort of on-ball midfield department. Um, they did pretty well last year to, to keep it together down back and up forward. But, you know, they're still, they're fairly anonymous down back still, aren't they? The likes of, well, apart from Harris Andrews, all Australian, but, you know, Darcy Gardner, etc. Uh, Daniel Rich has been great for him off halfback. Yeah, Harris, Harris Andrews is a very good footballer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, up the other end, Daniel McStay, uh, Oscar McInerney, you know, sort of ruckman slash forward. I'm not a big rap for that role as a rule. Eric Hipwood is the one who, you know, if he can click and sort of deliver more consistently on that potential, 
uh, that could be the key for them. But my friend, if ifs and ands of pots and pans owe to be a tinker, look, I have watched Hipwood carefully, and he is, I, I believe, the die is cast with Eric Hipwood. I really do. Yes, he's a match winner. We saw four goals in a sensational half in the second half of the season win them a game. But the reality is he, he doesn't get enough of the ball and he doesn't have enough scoreboard impact. And that is Eric Hipwood, and I don't think it's going to change. I think uh, I don't. I usually uh, don't disagree with you much, but I do on that. I, I think he will become a superstar of the competition. No so chance. mark it down. Let's see. Don't back it on. Don't bet on it. All right. Uh, North Melbourne next. Twelfth um, last season with ten wins and twelve losses. Uh, season of two halves, I guess. Like a lot of clubs, change of coach halfway through. Um, very disappointing uh, up until that halfway point. Uh, had in fairness to Brad Scott, had probably got it together a little bit better in the last couple of games he was there. But definitely a harder side to play against um, under Reece Shaw in that second half of the year. They tightened up, probably the most significant thing, they tightened up uh, defensively a lot. And over the second half of the year, they conceded three goals per game less than they did in the first half. That is very significant indeed. A couple of pivotal things. Jack Zebel going back to a, a sort of permanent midfield role rather than that sort of forward come mid. Um, I think... Uh, Again, uh, talking about specific recruits, Jasper Pittard thought he was great for him. Um, you know, he's always been he's had his detractors at Port Adelaide, but um, he was very solid at halfback for them. Came ninth in the best and fairest. I had a chat with him too during the week. He's a real. I don't sort of. I mean to sound surprised. He's a really, really intelligent, articulate guy, Jasper Pittard. I think people look at the tats and stuff and think, oh, he's a bit... And various hairdos and crazy runs with the ball that sometimes lack logic. But, uh, he, no, he's a really smart guy and a uh, lovely guy too. And we had, um, we had a terrific chat. And he was just talking about how, you know, he just felt refreshed and coming from Victoria initially too, you know, nine years being away from home. Did you ask him about his name change? Uh, I didn't. What, what was it? Well, he started his career as Jasper Pittard McMillan. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I didn't go there, admittedly. Um, he has a particularly good relationship with Ray Shaw, who was his defensive coach, and he said he credits Shaw with a lot of his consistency last year. Um, some other big discoveries for them last year, Nick Larkey and Cameron Zerha up forward, so uh, sort of reducing some of the load on uh, Ben Brown. Um uh, a couple of names uh, Pittard mentioned as keep your eye on. One of them was uh, Hosey, Lachlan Hosey, who they got in the mid-season draft. He really said he's quite a dynamic forward. Um, also said uh, look out for, after good second halves of last year, Jai Simpkin and Luke Davies Uniac. Uh, what do you think of the Roos? I think that they are pretty well set where they are. There's not a lot of, I know that you got given a couple of names there, but really there's not a lot of emerging young talent. Larky, the standout there. The big improvement could come with the return of Mag Jack Dorr. What a story that will be. Yeah. Because when he left the game, you know, through most unfortunate circumstances, he finished season 2018 as a, the footballer you want. Forward, backman, having 
the ability to go in the ruck and in all three positions take the game by the scruff of the neck. He was worth all the time invested in him. It was, don't worry about cruel luck for the club because it's more serious than that, but it was, for his career, just incredibly uh, unfortunate that the stop came then. Let's hope he returns. That could be the big improvement for them. I think that they are that team that they are. Roughly a 50-50 side, 10-12, 11 9-13, 13-9 at the best and worst. Yeah, I've got to admit, I agree. Look, I was quite bullish about them last year after what they'd done in 2018. Uh, I mean, they finished ninth, I think, and you know, everyone was sort of tipping them for bottom two, and they really stole a bit of a march on a few teams and the pundits. But I'm looking at them now sort of in the way you are, which is... And it's not even necessarily overly critically good, honest team. Um, you know, they'll they'll be a hard team. Uh, you know, they'll focus on contested footy. Um, I think they'll be difficult to play against. Um, just not sure if there's quite enough talent there to to really make a significant sort of push. Yeah, that's what I'm for September. Well, well, I could see them making a significant push for September, but not in September. Correct. I like I like Zerha. He strikes me as a real suburban footballer, made made good at league level. A bit, he's chunky. That's what I was going to say. A, yeah, a, a bit of a, a body shape that might not get you curry favour with the uh, skinfold tester. There's a guy at Essendon just like that too, Josh Begley. Yeah, similar. Yeah, sort of smart. Now I'm not comparing them other than physically, but yeah. And Zerhan knows where the goals is. He, I've seen a few of these players, stars in suburban football, who clearly should have been midfielders, but play on a half-forward flank because mm, probably training's a hit or miss for them. Um, that's not Zerha, but he reminds me of that sort of player. A star, really, a star even at AFL level, but not the normal mould. Okay, so we're both saying uh, could contend for lower reaches of yeah. the eight. As I best. said, 13-9 best, 9-13 worst. Yeah, yeah, no, agree with that. All right, final team for this week, and it is Sydney. And until last year, you would have said perennial finalists, but they missed out last season for the first time since 2009, and I think only the third time in about 25 years or some ridiculous figure. And actually ended up 15th on the ladder, incredibly low by their standards. Eight wins, 14 losses. Um, injuries uh, didn't help. Buddy Franklin only played the 10 games, of course, after uh, some hamstring issues. But there's been a big, big changing of the guard for the Swans, finally. And as expert as they've been over the years at uh, sort of regenerating whilst staying competitive, I think it's gone to another level this year. When you think about these following names, Heath Grundy, Kieran Jack, Jared McVeigh, Nick Smith. So the least experience of that quartet is Nick Smith with 211 games, I think. In total, that is about 1,100 games experience. That is a truckload. Throw in Zach Jones, who... Correct. Good point. Played over 100 games with the club. Uh, Look, they've got some interesting inclusions. Louis Taylor, I think, is one who could uh, give him a bit, coming in from Brisbane. They also get... um, And I I caught up... did mention I um, had a chat to Isaac Heaney. Um, bit of a forgotten man, but this guy's return will have an impact in a couple of ways. Uh, Sam Naismith, good ruckman in his own right and will allow Callum Sinclair, who actually can play as a key forward, I think, to oh, go yeah, forward a bit more. 
That, to me, Finey, is going to be the key to them. And as cliched as it sounds, there has been definitely an over-reliance on Franklin. Even those 10 games he played last year, he was responsible for just on a quarter of their entire score. Um, So they've tried to create alternatives, and they've probably got a few more now than they had. And I speak of uh, Nick Blakey, Tom McCartan, Sinclair being allowed to play down there a bit more. Isaac Heaney... um, is uh, he spent a fair bit of time forward, and so he tells me will so again. Um, you've got Tom Papley, Louis Taylor is handy forward as a potential goal kicker. Will Haywood, um, so they've got some options there, but they need them. And I think their issues these days are as much around what has been a strength: their contested ball. They were last for contested ball last year. Now, you wouldn't have thought that about the Swans too often in the modern era. They were second last for clearances on the differentials. And the numbers of guys they can depend on for that sort of hard inside mid stuff has really declined significantly. And these days, it essentially comes down to Josh Kennedy and, and Luke Parker for that, I think. So there's a big load on them and Josh Kennedy not getting any younger either. So I think that's a a problem with them. Um, I think replacing that experience is a potential issue for them as well. They, I feel that the, Look, everybody likes Blakey. Isn't he going to be a footballer if he isn't? Oh, get you, bro. If he isn't already. Well, when he plays St Kilda, he can say that. Yes, that's very good. They, to me, you know what? Instinctively, because they've been so great at regenerating, almost like, what is it, the Terminator or, you know, the (laughs) shoot shoot a body part off, it just reappears. And I feel that with players like Heaney and... Obviously, Blakey. Retention of Papley was, I'll get to that in a minute, wasn't necessarily well engineered, but the end result is good. And Alir Alir, who I rate as a very good centre-half back, can really like similarities to Magjack Daw, can really command that position. Now, I instinctively would have felt that that means that the Swans will be pressing for the eight this year and back in it by next year. But... I did not like their trade period or their psychology through that. I don't know why they went all in, using the poker term, for Joe Danaher, a player with a definite injury um, palette. There's no, and I'm not saying an injured palette, that means the artist palette of, of injuries and concerns. Their forward line's tall enough. You mentioned Callum Sinclair. They've still got Reed. Franklin. Oh, yeah, I didn't Frank, mention Reed, so Franklin's, apologies. Franklin's Sam. not deceased. Yeah. And McCartan turns out to be a very good swing man and can play forward. Why was there this obsession and really selling the farm to get Joe Danaher? To me, it was almost. It, it was almost sort of on the run. We've committed to him now. We really have to really commit to him. Now we've bloody got to commit to, you know. And I think it, it... Well, it was sort of in reverse, wasn't it? It was almost like sort of he came to them. Yeah, I'm saying that what started off as maybe a conversation got a bit out of control, and that's very unsydney like to me. I've always found them to be brilliantly calculated in the players they recruit. Mm. For example, the great recruitment of Kennedy and McGlynn for nothing. Didn't that turn the club around? Yeah. Now, yeah, I, I, their midfield's not deep enough. I don't think... You know what I think will happen to them this season? What? I think they'll be nuisance value, but not win a heap of games. Yeah. Because when you don't have a deep midfield, it tells at the end of a match. So 
that sort of team can can run sides, but you need depth in midfield to run out games. Well, give us a number of wins prediction. Seven. Uh, yeah, they won eight last year. Yeah. Be careful, because I've done this prediction of games with somebody once on radio. And you ended up with too, far too many wins. It worked out perfectly if... A third of the games could be won by both teams. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, I mean, this is the thing he, about later people were just leaning towards. This guy was just leaning towards being generous to every team. I'd, yeah, they'll get seven. They'll yeah, get seven. but everyone yeah. does that. I defy anyone to do a ladder prediction now and not have at least three teams in a lot lower positions than you think that they yeah, probably deserve. Yeah, and, th- and I think that's really exciting for the competition. But, it is, but you can't terrible for us. You can't over predict wins because there's only so many available. I, I'll go. I'll go the eight to ten win mark for them, but yep. likewise, I'd probably say that for yeah most of the competition, and obviously that can't happen. All right, so we're uh, we're not that bullish about Sydney, certainly, but again, sort of acknowledging the possibility of them returning to the. Can, uh, can I ask you a question? Where does where will Blakey play the bulk of his career? Uh, I would have thought the third tall. Because he, he plays like a centre-half forward. forward, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. No, I think as a forward. But he moves as well as midfielders. Yeah. Well, most of them do now, Finey. I mean, like, there aren't many sort of key forward types that aren't very mobile now. You they know, just, I think the big the big power forward days are gone. You know, the Travis Cloak days are gone. It's all about, you do know. They, do they pelly him and sort of use him around the place? Because yeah, I think Bontempelli, now as a captain, Bontempelli now has arrived as a, a permanent midfielder. Yeah. But I don't know whether... I don't know. One of them, a premiership. You know, he's a great player, Bontempelli, and I, I put him potentially in that class. Well, we spoke about the Bulldogs the other week, and their great weapon is the flexibility. They've got about twenty players who can play in the midfield, and so a lot Blakey of them might can play elsewhere. Blakey might be thrust into the midfield yep. because of a dearth of depth. Well, a dearth of depth. Um, isn't that a dearth of dearth? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the death of death. <laughs> the depth of dearth. Um, yeah, it is. It's a depth of dearth. <laughs> or it's a dearth of... It's no, a depth of dearth. I don't know. Why did I go there? Um, but that will give him a different look. You don't see seashells. That will give him a different midfield look. So yeah. uh, I think certainly not beyond their realms. And you know what that means? That at some point, their sentiment will be taller, could be taller than their ruckman. Because their second ruckman may be like a McCartan and Blakey's bloody tall. Oh, what a crazy old world we live in. It is, uh, it is topsy-turvy. All right, that's more than enough for news this week. I think uh, let's kick back finally and talk about life. Life Hacks. Building a better world. Straight into this segment, uh, what's your first life hack for this week? A mere culpa. Unlike Fonzie, I can say I was wrong. I told you last week to keep an eye out on a program called Avenue 5. The main reason I told you that was because you're a Veep fan and yep. it's produced by the same people. Yeah. And the setup episode, I said, wasn't bad. Now, I know this seems like a radical departure from where I was last week, but having watched the second episode... I'm never watching it again. Oh, God. It is utter crapulence. Oh, really? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Hugh Laurie got me in because I love him. Yeah, yeah. He's okay. He's potentially all right in it, even though his character annoyingly goes from American accent to English accent. And you know what's annoying about that? Until another character on the show points it out, it's too subtle to know the difference. Ah, And I'm too used to him doing both those accents. Yeah. Right. Now, this is really interesting. I just 
was watching it with Natalie, my wife, yeah. and with about three, four minutes ago, I said, change the channel. This thing's going nowhere. It's F, F used. It, it's, it's no good. And then I went on this diatribe as to why I hated it. So she went online to look at some official reviews. She hands me this review out of a New York Entertainment Magazine, which was the first one that comes up on Google. She says, did you write this? Everything I said I hated about it, they hated about it. Oh, really? The sets are, you know, this is like 40 years on from Star Trek. They are so pathetic, the sets. You know, it's supposed to be a cruise liner in space. There's like three different areas that no money spent there the rest of the cast is mediocre the characters are annoying and to think that they're going to be the it's like an episode of the love boat where because that's what it is it's a cruise ship with focus on four four different characters in the um in the passengers yeah they are just annoying and going nowhere but the most annoying thing about the program is they thought it would be funny that one of the dynamics was that when Earth talks to the spaceship, there's a 26-second delay, and that really annoys the owner of the spaceship, who's a very seen-before trite billionaire's son. Yeah. Let me tell you, that 20-second delay is very annoying to the characters, and it's even more annoying to the viewers. You actually do. It beca- because, you know, then they start talking about different conversations, and you have to wait... and. Oh my! And they say it on this thing. It's like you—you, you, the one thing they convey is the aggravation of the twenty-second delay perfectly because they do it. Two episodes, and apparently four have been shown in America. The script goes nowhere. We have had nothing interesting happen. They're still bumbling around in space with this, and there's no jokes. There's no gags. Do not watch it. Avenue Five is a dead end. Wow. All right, I must say, I saw the um, the ad for it or the trailer, and it didn't interest. Me. It didn't really sort of bad. inspire me at all. Really I thought, bad. So it's not surely it's not written by the people. It's the same team. Really? What's yeah. his? It's a team guy, isn't yeah, it? Armando. Yeah, and they and Ignacio or something. That's something like Ignacio or something. In the review, it said he's got a great body of work. Yeah, everybody's allowed to miss. This is your miss. Yeah. Don't do it again. Wow. Okay. Oof. Okay, no, well, I won't not, go there. And it's four episodes of the first season's eight episodes, and there's already a very strong sense you'll never see it again. No more. It's it's not going to be produced again. Well, speaking of, I'll just say this quickly. I've watched the first two episodes of the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, and uh, been a long time between drinks, so absolutely love the first one. And they're, they're sort of 38-minute episodes, so... Commercial TV, it's probably about an hour, but um, really enjoyed the first one, sort of reacquainting myself with all the characters, and um, Jeff, his manager, gets constantly mistaken for Harvey Weinstein. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, I watched an episode, I didn't know whether it was a new one or whether I'd missed one recently in the past. What happened in it? There was a portrait painted of Jeff's wife. Yeah, that's that's the that was good. Se- that's a new season. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, that was the second episode. Yeah, so it, it's been pretty good so far. Although I've got to say, watching the second one, I've forgotten how grating Larry's character oh, is yeah. on you because yeah. he's just. I mean, geez, I reckon I can winch for Australia, but Larry David is just—is there nothing he can't criticize or or just or, make a stand on? He's, you know, he just. You know what he describes himself as a a social um, destroyer, a social interrupter. Oh, he certainly is. 
it's like what he says is often quite true, but they're things you keep to yourself, or you just don't make a a, a, a line in the sand for yeah. these things. Yeah. Anyway, so sitting too close. Yeah. Was too it? Uh, side, side, sitting. side sitting. Yeah. That yeah. was good. <laughs> That's a, um, and the portrait was of Susie, of course, Jeff's uh, wife. Um, she's a good character. Anyway, um, that wasn't one of my life hacks, but uh, my first one actually is a serious one, and I know I've been talking about politics a bit. I'll try and make this more general than a specific sort of pushing of one side, but the whole sports rorts affair. Boo. Well, I've, I've found... No, not boo. I just hate the... When, because it rhymes, oh. it's now sports rorts. Okay. Well, I've found that whole story very disturbing um, because, politics aside, it's the seeming acceptance now the Australian public has that... Uh, not acceptance, but the resignation that corruption is just a part of political life. And to give you an idea how much standards have changed, well, one of the big arguments about this one has, and of course, if you haven't caught up with the latest, Bridget McKenzie has stepped down from the cabinet and stepped down as National Party Deputy Leader. Interestingly, um, she's had the heat put on her to resign from her colleagues, not because of the immorality of what's been going on, but because of a conflict of interest, because she didn't detail her involvement with the Wangaratta Shooting Club or whatever it was. So um, seasoned political observers have been astonished at just the brazenness of uh, Scott Morrison and co just trying to ride this one out. But to give you an idea how much standards have shifted... There was a previous sports rorts affair with a Labor government in power back in the mid-90s and Ros Kelly was Minister for Sport and she, I remember the whiteboard affair and yep. she had to step down from that role, um, being sprung, doing a bit of pork barrelling as it's called herself. But going back before that, I can remember um, these were the two that came to mind and I, I looked up the dates and it was it was right. There was... Um, a Liberal minister in the Fraser government, I think Michael McKellar, who bought a colour TV back from overseas and wrote on his declaration form that it was black and white because that saved him a bit of duty. He had to resign his post. And probably, arguably the most famous one was Mick Young, the uh, big union, union man yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, cuddly, lovable... Uh, he, was, he might have been minister for... Industrial relations. Cuddly lovable. I don't think all sides of politics found him cuddly and lovable. He, but in the Hawke government, um, well, if you remember, 1984, he had to resign over what became known as the Paddington Bear Affair. Yeah. They came back from England, I think, and his wife's suitcase had a, a teddy bear in it, and she'd failed to declare the teddy bear, and he had to resign over it. Yeah, but it was full of cocaine. <laughs> No, it wasn't. Um, but uh, the standards, it's fair to say, are a lot more exacting. I mean, the if you're not up on this story, and we, we are a sporting podcast, so like some very, very needy and deserving sports clubs have been absolutely shafted because they happen to reside in the wrong electorates in terms of what was good for the prevailing government. And it's just wrong. But what really worries me is that there's sort of this almost apathy, public apathy towards this story. Um, and there shouldn't be because people then complained about the, the, the governments we're given and they haven't taken an interest in what's been going on. But also in the political media too, there's a few people like Peter Van Onselen has gone after this one pretty hard. 
But there's way too many political journos for whom a story like this becomes purely about how will the machinations play out in a um, strategic sense. So, you know, will they dump Bridget McKenzie? Who will replace her? What does this do to Morrison's popularity? Yeah, will there yeah. be a push? You know, rather Without getting into what she did exactly, and and how it's affected. Um, you know, like volunteers for sports clubs who, who spent countless hours putting together applications and had very uh, strong cases only to be ignored because they were in a you know electorate that um, couldn't be won. I mean, it, you know, so or lost. Uh, yeah, exactly. So the you know the horse race sort of thing that is the fascination of so many political journalists uh, journalists these days gives me the screaming shits. All right, that's enough on that one. Your I'll, second. See, I would write an article that absolutely outlined what the indiscretions were, and do you know what the heading for that what the um what's it called? <laughs> yes, it would be, headline would be it would be thoughts on sports rorts. No. The All mis- sorts of sports rules. The misadventures of Bridget McKenzie. Oh, yes. Yeah. Someone else. Uh, someone did try that one. Oh, Dan Churney, actually. Yeah? Yeah. No, oh. The, the Churnster, which is amazing because he wouldn't have even been a glint in his grandparents' eye when that, that um, movie, came, movie out. came out. And also, you mentioned uh, Mick Young. Yeah. How comes I know... Union leaders used to wield great political oh, power. Yeah, yeah. And I know... I, I can name the union leaders from when I was like 12. Yeah. The big ones, Normie Gallagher, John Haypenny. He didn't yep. like being called Haypenny. Yeah. Hartley. Uh, Michael. Uh, John Hartley. John Hartley. Oh, Bill Hartley. No, Bill Hartley. Bill, Bill yeah. Hartley. He was a member of the Communist Party at one stage. Yep. He was big friends with Libya. Yes. Formed the Australian-Libya Friendship Society. Yes. I don't think they had... I think they. I don't think they met at the MCG, that group. Yes. Necessarily. But they were big figures, weren't they? They were. Obviously, Bob Hawke. I don't, they're not as powerful anymore. No, well, the union they've been a de- lot of work, haven't they? A lot of workplaces are far less unionised than yeah. they were. Nonetheless, the media. All right, we've got to get on with it. Number two, just as I said, don't listen to me about Avenue Five. I should have listened to your great rant last week about the swimming pool, <laughs> because I put in an enormous amount of effort to clean my pool and rid it of the mud look. But what I didn't worry about was the chemistry. Now, you know, if you've got a salt pool, see, <laughs> I was running the filter too he- too hot and heavy. So, like many pool owners, even though I'm new at this, I got a sample of the water and went to a pool shop. Do you know what the recommended level of chlorine in your pool is? And I don't know what the measure is, but there's a number. You need to have between three and five right. for your number of chlorine. Sorry, close- sorry, oh, sorry, I've got to go with this, otherwise yep. it will obsess me. When you walked into the pool shop and asked about the right level, did the guy say, if the chemistry is right? No, he didn't. Okay. Go what on. he did say was, <laughs> it should be between three and five. <laughs> yeah, that's Mondo Rock. Yeah. He, he then pointed out that public pools close for swimming above 8.5 chlorine level. He said that because of what had happened, he, he'd had some people come in with 13s. He then tested the water and looked at me and said, what are you doing? It was 18.3. Oh, my God. Luckily, the kids weren't swimming in it at this juncture. Otherwise, they would have looked like the cast of the village of the damned. <laughs> <laughs> People who don't know that, they're all snow blonde with sort of struck out eyes. But I had run it too heavy because a salt pool creates its own yeah. chlorine through yeah. an electrode. Yeah. And I was running it at 90% for about 90% flow for about 14 hours a day. 
basically creating more chlorine yeah. than Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan <laughs> to combined. This is what I keep telling you. There's a lot of nuances. There's a lot with of chemistry. A lot of chemistry involved. Yeah. So we those two incredibly hot days we couldn't swim. Yeah. Because you know it would have it would have my boys would have become sterile. My girls would have become freaks, and me and my wife would have been killed. Well, yeah, no, I, my sympathies. I'll tell you why we haven't been swimming because ever since the dirty rain downpour, which is now nearly two weeks ago. Yes. Um. Well. We actually had to put on hold our pool cleaning because we couldn't afford it. And cleaning um, yourself, I've, I've been up and down that thing with the vacuum cleaner fifteen thousand times. No, it's it's beyond repair now. Oh, you've got it's, a big pool too. Yeah, it requires the um, the the whole task force. So, and of course now since the dirty rain incident, they're just completely worked off their backside. So yeah. yeah, they won't be there for another week. So I'm actually hoping there isn't too many hot you know, days. You know what I found really funny though, at the end of it all, I had gone through this enormous effort to clean the pool <laughs> and the problem was there was all this red dirt on the bottom of it. Mm. People swim in rivers all the time. Yeah, yeah. Why was I why was I petrified of a, a body of water with some red dust in it? I don't know, I used to be like that about seaweed at beaches. Um Since started eating it wrapped around sushi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, second one, very quick one for me, just an observation. So uh, on Saturday night, I sat back and decided to watch the Melbourne Victory take on uh, the Perth Glory in Perth, so 9.45 start. It's a pretty good game, actually. Um, Some cracking goals. In fact, there were four goals, and all of them were crackers. Um, Marco Rojas uh, returned for the victory, so it was an emotional occasion. Uh, And Victory... Probably deserve to come away with the points here, as has become their want. They gave away not one but two of the or both goals in injury time. Uh, Fornaroli scoring in injury time of the first half, and then Nick D'Agostino um, equalising for Perth in the or just on injury time, the ninetieth minute. So uh, the points shared there. But look, I, I don't want to pot. Fox here too much because I I think I love their soccer coverage. I reckon it's really good. I love um, Adam Peacock and Bozzer and Andy Harper and Robbie Slater and all the boys. I think Simon they, Hill. They oh sorry, I forgot Simon Hill. And um, he's I correspond with Simon a fair bit on Twitter these days. He's uh, accomplished uh, drummer too. I think I might have mentioned last week. Anyway, they do a great job. But um, boy, they had a not them, the production crew had a, a bad uh, moment during this game because they were halfway through showing a replay of what was a fairly inconsequential uh, incident from and, memory. And scored. And completely and utterly missed D'Agostino's goal. So I was watching it with David and we're sitting there going, oh God, they've got to hang on, they've got to hang on. And watching a replay of something and then we hear the commentary, oh, he scored! Didn't even see it. Um, of course, we subsequent re- replays showed it was a very good header from D'Agostino, but just, uh, yeah, a really unfortunate moment from a TV directorial point of view. All right, your last one. As I pointed out, during the consecutive days above 40, our swimming pool was unswimmable, and we don't have air conditioning in our place downstairs anyhow, so I don't go upstairs, that's where the kids live. So how do you keep cool? And I have got to give credit to a mainstay of Australian life, an underrated product that I have for over 50 years indulged in in one form or another. Oh, the wet towel on the forehead? No, no, no. no the fan? Is, 
No, this is something you eat oh. or drink. Zupa duper. Correct. Oh. The zupa duper is the. Except they weren't called that. What, what are we cool used to pops. call? Cool pops. Yeah. yeah, and they were different shape. They were a bit sort of wider, but that's okay. They have been a mainstay of hot summers in this country. No parent does not know the dynamic of the empty plastic tubes, a trail of ants, <laughs> cordial drips here and there. Yeah. But we indulge in them ourselves. In fact, so popular are they that there are healthy versions. In, in fact, in hospitals and retirement homes, you get sort of Lucozade ones and, yeah, that's right. and healthy ones. Oh, yeah, when you're sick, yeah. But they are... The, you, you know, we used to say the national salute was swatting a flyaway. Yeah, I believe the nationals suck. If we need to, <laughs> if we need to nationalise, what is the nationals suck? It is not what you might think. It is midsummer festival yesterday. I wonder. Anyhow, they. It's definitely the Zupa Duper. That is our national suck. Well, I love them. Yeah, oh, it looks, it's a convenient one too, as opposed to, uh, I was just thinking back to sunny boys and glugs and uh, razors. And, and Slurpees and, ain't it, Miss Thing. They're no good. They they don't satisfy. We just called them Frozens, didn't we? Well, that's what we used to call them, Frozens. You yeah. know what else we're out But camp- you, you had an austere upbringing. No, I didn't. Why'd you say that? When you were in a communist household where the only flavoured Cool Pop was water. Can, can we, look, because... Did you have frozen water Cool Pops? Because, shut the... Because... <laughs> Because people uh, fail to, you know, they're, they're not sort of subtle enough to. Let me just state for the record: I was not raised in a communist household. <laughs> Didn't um, you raised in North Vietnam? Yeah, yeah, on a rice paddy. Yeah, correct. Um, I, I am being facetious. Yeah, I was raised in the wilds of East Malvern. Um, now, my mum, East Malvern—that's the communist part of Malvern. We, we were the, we were the family of some sort of repute in East Malvern because we were so different, you know. <laughs> Um, my mum used to the make... hammer and sickle fly yeah, okay. over the house. I get the jokes, funny. Like, I wonder if it's, <laughs> if it's the case. No. Um, my mum used to make this great thing called uh, Hawaiian fruit freeze, which I learned to make when I was a kid, and it, it had heaps of sugar in it. But it was basically boiling water, sugar, orange juice, lemon juice, passion fruit, a uh, whole variety of fruits, and you just you froze it, and then you'd sort of dug it out once it was frozen and sort of mashed it all up and ate it. And it was beautiful. I used to love that. That that reminded me of summer as well. Was that did you call that the Trotsky cocktail? Yes we did, yes. <laughs> Come have a Trotsky. No, it would it be it'd be more a Castro, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. Castro ice freeze. <laughs> Castro uh, okay. Were there any posters of any of those Marxist or socialist leaders? No, there weren't. What there was, I can tell you, what did hang all over our house, though, were um, sort of Latin American artifacts. Yeah, I mean, your mother is... is a, she, she was very well-traveled. She was yeah, a... Um, professionally involved with the touring of South America and yeah, Latin she America. Yeah, she did. Uh, and in fact, uh, quite seriously, she did go on several work brigades to Cuba. Um, but long before that, she led tour groups around all South America. So, yeah, we, we had flamenco music going all the time. We had, you know, sort of South American wall hangings everywhere. And um, it was a strange house. You know what I remember hanging, when you said hanging around the house, do you know, do you, I swear, it just came back to me, what we had hanging around our house, especially <laughs> in summer, those Mortine <laughs> strips that flies just stuck to. It was such a primitive way of catching flies. I, just, I don't know why I wanted to say gefilte fish. And I've got... <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't even know what it is, but it just must, Fisch is a, it, must have been a line of Woody Allen film. Yeah, because Gefilte Fish is a very traditional Jewish food yeah, right. eaten on Friday. You know, yeah. It's minced. It's how to make fish go longer. So you mince fish yeah. with, with like a, a – it's, like it's like the equivalent of a hamburger. Ooh, but maybe Andrews could get that variety. Oh, no, because it's boiled. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> there, and there the happiness ends. Yeah. What about sardines? While we're talking crap, sardines, they're quite divisive, aren't they? I used to love they sardines. They really pack them in, don't they? No, but I, I used you to... You know what they pack them in like? Uh, sardines. Yeah. I, I used to love sardines on toast uh, with a sort of squeeze of lemon juice and a bit of salt and pepper. No, you're not a fan? Uh, I don't... I should be more mature because I've really matured with everything else. But sardines, for some reason, no, because my father had them on toast and he used to mash them. Yeah. And I would see a spine coming up out of his toast. Want some? What about where do you stand on anchovies? Oh, I love them. <clears throat> and I love the. I love the Too salty. Well, they're, they're the cheapy. Yeah, but they're very good to use in cooking because they melt. So oh, instead they? of salt, you can put it in a spag bowl or whatever. gives an umami type feel to it. But if you don't like them, do you like the white Spanish anchovies, the, the much milder ones? don't think I've had oh, they're Are beautiful. they like white bait? No, no, no. They're anchovies and they're in oil, but they look white. And they're yum. You'll love yeah, them. Okay. I, I think I've only ever had anchovies on pizza. Yeah, yeah. What about capers? Are you allowed to eat capers I don't without? Like ca- but are you allowed to eat like them it. without salmon? Why would you? Is there a person on the planet who just eats them straight out of the jar? Well, that's what I'm saying. You only have a sort really of salty. salmon with salmon. They're, they're piquant. It's like you know, it would be like cheech without chong. Where is this going? Anyway, um, so that was was that your last one? Yeah, it was. So my last one, and a very quick one. And you know uh, the famous thing about anchovies. The greatest phone call ever to talk back radio to Bruce and Phil. Oh, I, I remember it. I heard it not it's that long so ago. Good. Their reaction is so – you really let yourself down. Yeah. I'm sure people know it. It's, no, it's, no, it's a, no, I'm not doing the joke. Okay. But somebody pretending to be a young man, a kid almost, wasn't a kid, told an off-colour joke about the smell of an anchovy's anatomy. Anyhow – the reaction by Bruce, and at the end, I think they were sort of found it funny, but they were, it, it's not as serious a reaction as you might think, but you've really blotted your copybook. <laughs> now, don't call back. All right. Uh, Did you remember what he said? He said, we were able to dump that, but we've got a lot of regulars on hold, and there was that old woman that used to ring in all the time, like Edna or Marcy. Which one? But he goes, Edna's on hold, if she's still with us. <laughs> All right, final one for me, and very quick, and I've only uh, just sort of stumbled upon this this morning. I am, unlike your good self, Finey, and we won't go there, uh, very, very um, fastidious about my mobile phone. Uh, I figure (laughs) if you're going to have a mobile phone, you need to actually keep it somewhere nearby so uh, you can use it or people can contact you. And uh, I figure if you're going to have a mobile phone, what is the point of not having it nearby? So, uh, and of course, you know, with smartphones, they're very, very useful. What? Well, I don't know why it happened this morning. Probably because I've spent three days trying to contact you again. But um, it's because of you. I don't have my phone, mate. Yeah. Oh, because of me. You rang me at the wrong time. Yeah. I then put it. I kept it close to me. I knew you'd go into this. Go on. Well, I put it in my pocket, and then I fucking. Oh. <laughs> you got to leave that in because I really am upset about it. Hurry up. 
I jumped in the swimming pool to clean my pool and my phone was in my pocket. Yeah, no, not a not a good move. Yeah. Don't um, edit that. That was natural. Yes, okay. Um, so, you know, well, unbelievably for me, I managed, I left my phone at home this morning and I got sort of halfway here and it was too late to turn around again. And I feel so naked without it, Fanny. And I was thinking, <laughs> oh, I will get by. And then um, suddenly I became aware of about three or four things that, uh, it was very useful for just merely in the recording of this podcast so we don't go on and on and on like I think we are right now. Um, so they have become indispensable items. and We've all seen, you know, public transport shots of groups of, you know, 50 people and 48 of them are staring at their mobile phones and um, th- that is worrying. But our dependence upon those objects and... I suspect if you you know you lost your phone or you couldn't afford one anymore or whatever, and that that is a possibility, um, you'd soon enough get used to it, and you'd probably see a considerable upside. In fact, there's always some uh, bloody boring columnist writing in a paper every other week about how I left technology behind for a week or how I got off social media. Um, but we have become very very reliant on our mobile phones and uh, just not being in its vicinity right now is making me a little bit edgy. Uh, All right, that is enough of life hacks for this week. Uh, I think it's time we uh, step back in time, Finey, for vinyl and video. Let's do that. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. All right, uh, well, it was your turn to choose a year this week, Finey. We've been uh, we've had a few delves into the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, a quick foray into the 21st century. Where are we going this week? Farther back than we've been previously. Too. Ooh, how far? All the way to the year of love, 1969. 1969, that's a massive year in... in uh, the history of mankind, isn't it? Uh, what would Carlton be this? Richmond, yeah, was it? Of course. The yeah, forgotten Rich- Grand Final. Uh, is it forgotten? Yeah. yeah. Not a bad game, actually, from memory. I think. Very um, windy, wasn't it? Yeah, a bit. And uh, Tigers blew them off the park early, and Carlton had a big third quarter, and then Richmond charged again. Kekovic played all right for Carlton. Uh, Sam's brother, Brian. Yeah, KB. Oh, I think you're thinking 68, of 68. 68. Yeah. That. Anyway, what was we, the we digress. what 69? was the single biggest thing that happened in 1969? Man stepped into a filming lot somewhere in California <laughs> yeah. and claimed to have got to the moon. <laughs> if you've seen that movie Cap, uh, Capricorn, Capricorn One, One. Yeah. Uh, which was quite good. Who was the female lead in that again? It was it Brenda Vaccaro? Gee, that's a good memory. Yeah, I know why. Oh, that just came to me then. Um, all right, any particular reason for 1969? I. Th- I I was proven correct. Look, the late 60s is fertile ground across all three divisions, yeah. but particularly music. I oh. mean, you can't miss Yeah, It's well worth going back into the late mid to late 60s for music. Yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, I think I, I've, I'm going to go first. Go I've been it. kicking us off on this. Um, all right. I, I know what your choice is, so there's no danger of giving it away. And it's almost a bit embarrassing, not not that our choice, we're not both rightly happy with our choices, but this is what we haven't chosen. Among other albums uh, in 1969, Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin 1 and 2, both coming out in the same year. And I can't believe you didn't pick that. 
You're a big Zeppelin fan. Yeah, I am, but uh, I'll, I'll come to why I've picked the one I have. The Beatles, Abbey Road. Many would say the Beatles' finest album. Many would say if your partner's name was Abby and it was her birthday today, you should have selected it. And uh, thank you for mentioning that. Say very happy birthday to my beloved Abigail Christie Ford. Um, hope you're having a great day, darling. If you listen to this, which I know you don't, so you won't, uh, but I'll play it back to you anyway. And uh, we're very lucky to have you in our male-dominated household. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, we're aware of your pain and suffering, uh, particularly living with me. No, happy birthday. Um, uh, What else do we have? Uh, So they were were probably the major albums. The other ones I was going to mention sort of come with my choice. You know what struck me about the albums? That big bands didn't do one album a year. Like, they did two or three. Well, uh, funny you should say that, because probably the first band I ever got into as a kid, and seriously, to the point I'd had, I had all nine albums, studio albums they recorded by the time I was nine years old. What? Yep. <laughs> as a nine-year-old? Yep. I, I, that is serious. I got a great start to my music education. Um, Creedence Clearwater Revival. I absolutely love that band. They only came out here once in 1972, and uh, I remember I fought this pitch battle to be able to to go to the concert, and I couldn't get anyone to take me, so I didn't go. It was a festival hall. I was devastated, and about a month after they toured here, I reckon, they split up, and uh, never forgiven my parents for that. But uh, they did, however, buy me all the records. I was a massive fan, and to your point, they recorded not one, not two, but three albums in 1969. When you think about the fact that, I was thinking of this last night, what's the best um, sort of contrast here? And I think of Guns N' Roses, who recorded, uh, I don't particularly like Guns N' Roses, but they recorded Use Your Illusion in 1991. Their next album was Chinese Democracy, which came out in, I think, 2008. Oh, yeah, but their lead singer did have a... Predilection to substances. Well, another of my, uh, uh, one of my favourite bands, The Mark of Cain, uh, they had a 11 year gap between albums. Um, I'm sure you're going to say hiatus. uh, No, no, well, they they sort of, they work and stuff. Anyway, Creedence were absolutely prolific. So at the start of that year, they bought out um, Bayou Country, which was their first studio album. And at the end of that year, they brought out Willie and the Poor Boys, uh, which had uh, the massive Proud Mary on it. In between, they brought out what I think is probably a toss-up, but I think very close to their best album, Green River. And um, uh, the hits off that, Green River, the title track, and Bad Moon Rising, of course, is the one you hear in every movie about the 60s or... You name it, Bad Moon Rising, you would have heard it 100,000 times. But it's way more than that, this album. Uh, what, what did I like about Creedence? It was, they had a, Every movie with Judd Nelson has Bad Moon Rising. <laughs> they, they had that southern sort of rock sound, a bit countryish, um, but they were still rocky. And I think Green River is their, probably their rockiest album. Who are we talking about? We're talking about John uh, Fogarty, of course, lead guitar and vocals. His brother Tom, who was rhythm. Stu Cook on bass. Doug Clifford on drums. Uh, what's on Green River? Green River, Commotion, which is a real furious rocker. Tombstone Shadow. 
uh, wrote a song for everyone, which is sort of a, a bit ballady, but quite nice. Bad Moon Rising, Lodi, which I think a lot of people would have heard. Cross Tie Walker, Sinister Purpose, which has got a real sort of down and dirty, grungy guitar sound about it. And The Night Time is the Right Time. It is a it's a nasty album, Fighty, and I mean that in a good way. It's it's just got that real edgy, riffy guitar, dirty guitar sound, and um, uh, almost ahead of its time in that respect, I think. Fantastic album, and uh, you're right, we're spoiled for choice. There's some great stuff there, but uh, I absolutely loved Creedence Clearwater Revival and uh, very happy with that choice. Incidentally, quickly, Green River voted uh, 2003 Rolling Stone release their top their 500 greatest albums haven't been through the list for a long, long time. But Green River came in at number 95, so it made the top 100. Your choice. Now, interestingly, I sometimes wax and wane. I, I sometimes pick a song or a TV show or movie that I loved at the time. And sometimes I pick examples that I've, I've learnt to love or grown to love. And that is the case with this performer. At the time, I wouldn't have given him the time of day. Sure, I was four years old. But even <laughs> as I started to be aware of music, maybe a couple of years after your good self, maybe 10, 11, 12 years of age, his music would have been the last thing I'd listen to. But as I got older, I became fond of it. And this is, I, I think, is generally accepted as Johnny Cash's best album. It's Johnny Cash at San Quentin or Johnny Cash live at San Quentin. There's a documentary that goes with it, which is outstanding viewing. Gives you a real insight into San Quentin because uh, he plays in front of the prisoners, real prisoners, real guards. The probably the most challenging song on the album is San Quentin, where you can hear the audience is very supportive of San Quentin. I hate every inch of you, San Quentin. You know, I won't rest until you're rubble in the ground it's a real rebellious song about hatred of san quentin in san quentin with guards at hand what are the acoustics like in the album excellent it's been remixed probably now but it has it's so it's like it was really um it's such an iconic so i must admit look i'm I'm not i don't dislike him but i'm not a johnny cash fan i haven't listened to the album but i i know everyone sort of knows of the album yeah was this the first time it had happened like a performer you know no, no it, was very, it was common to perform at in prisons it was uncommon to record a record there yeah and it just happens that on this record were two of arguably his biggest and best songs out of three. No Ring of Fire, but there was the great Folsom Prison Blues. Yep. Uh, and I think people are familiar with that song. Um, and Walk the Line. Yeah, which became the title, title of, of the his movie. Bio, uh, uh, biopic with Joaquin Phoenix. It also includes sort of a novelty song, but I think a really good song with a, a, a clever country twist to it, A Boy Named Sue. Oh, yeah. Some people don't like it. I like it. Um, it it shows his ability to tell a story with humour, which he does in a few of his songs, traditional country humour songs, and then a couple of other songs that he explains, he talks through. One was written by a prisoner that he particularly likes. And it's funny because in this performance, and you get this on the album, he doesn't, he, he gives the impression that he spent time in prison. You know, through his songs and through... Th- he he spent one night in prison in his life for taking flowers out of a cemetery to give to a, <laughs> a, a paramour. But 
and that was only he was held, you know, just overnight in custody in a small town. He never went to prison. But that myth sort of perpetuated after this album. Nevertheless, a great album and considered his best. And uh, if, you were, if you're not into country music but you're looking for an, an introduction to it, would you suggest this album? Yeah, he's not a country singer, even though he was, in his lifetime, he was categorised as country. He's blues, country, um, what's it, bluegrass, yeah. a, a range of things. His last song was a... a, a, a gr- Last hit was a powerful interpretation of ah, Nine Inch Nails. Nails. Hurt, yeah. yeah. So no, no, I did, I, I did like that. The man can sing. I was so impressed Could that he sing. was doing Nine Inch Nails. Like, oh, what? because it, it, he he had serious drug addiction, and that song came from a place of personal pain. So mm. he sang it well. Uh, all right, no, interesting choice, and uh, that is Johnny Cash live at San Quentin. Okay, can I go next for you? See why. I'll be very. I'll be quite quick. Oh yeah, because uh, I want you to talk about because I know you love this movie. Okay, but the reason I want to go next is because I geographically don't move an inch. All right, a lot of this it. movie oh, was yeah. filmed at San Quentin. All right, your movie of nineteen sixty nine is Take the Money and Run. To me, the equal funniest Woody Allen movie of all time. I it's, feel I feel like the kid in class who put his hand up desperately wanting to give the answer and got beaten. I love this movie. In fact, I would say. See, I don't find most comedic movies that movies that funny. I, f- I like comedy, but I've, I've found it better in TV than movies generally. This movie, to me, was hilarious. <laughs> As a young person, you know, I, I found it when I was 15 or 16. So, But I've, it, it's... Look, it's a, it's a sort of um, mockumentary yeah. of Virgil Starkwell. Is that his name? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of his life. A, a klutzy Woody Allen. It's the first time Woody Allen does the triple. Well, it's, his first, it's his first movie. No, his first movie was What's Up, Tiger Lily. But that's a different sort of movie. Are you sure about that? 100%. Okay. It's an, but that's just an overdub of a Japanese schlock movie. So this is his first directorial debut, acting debut, and producer. So he does the, the triple here for the first time. It just has look. It's got these great gags running through it of a of a of a schlemiel of a a, a criminal. He mm. just it's Woody Allen, you know the putsy Jewish Woody Allen trying to make life as a criminal. And the narration is good too. It's, it's superb. Yeah. And you know it's it, there's a very funny moment because his parents are interviewed through it, but they wear <laughs> cheap <laughs> cheap fake fake glasses with. Mustaches and noses. What about? And then he has a son and names it after his mother because she's been a man the whole movie. The the first, um, almost the funniest parts, like the the actual start of the movie where they They step on his glasses. Yeah, yeah, it keeps happening up until he's an adult. But you know that whole sort of doco thing that you see the recap of his early life. School band in the marching band playing the um, what is it the The, the, oboe. Yeah, the giant one where you have to sit down and play. It's not called an oboe. Yeah, what is it? Double bass. Uh, it's a double bass. Yeah, and uh, anyway, so you have to play pick, it seated. So he keeps to, picking up the chair and running. I mean, on. how funny is that? <laughs> and then, and then gags that are so synonymous with him. The gun of soap that you it think, starts raining. I think I've seen that before, but he, that was his gag. Look, he came from a very strong background. I love his stand-up comedy. What, what about, hang on, you're like this one. What about um, where he's, the, he's, he's in jail? Medical experimentation. Yeah, uh, the, uh, we we want to try a new vaccine. 
Uh, the drug is a success, except for one temporary side effect where for 12 hours Virgil was turned into a rabbi. And that's why, <laughs> and they show it, that's why on Passover... And we eat the unleavened bread. And he's, pre- he's, be- he's like rabbiing in a prison cell. But, but um, the movie, interestingly, had two endings. It had quite a dark ending where he was gunned down trying to escape. Oh, really? But, no, but he's one of the guys involved in production with him, who would later credit with being a great help to a young Woody Allen with advice, said, it's too dark an ending. And so it ends with the documentarian... Um, sort of talking to him, and his last words are, because he's once again carving a gun out of soap, he asked the documentarian, is it raining outside? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, the, ba- the attempted bank hold-up. Oh, with they... the note? Two, yeah. two attempted bank hold-ups. Yeah, One where, where the, the, there were two groups of bank robbers, that's right. and he lost the vote. Yeah, but they're filming it. The director's yeah. filming it. He says, you call this a <laughs> robbery? <laughs> And then the first, his first bank robbery, he passes a note saying, I have a gun, give me all your money. But she reads it as, I have a gub, uh, yeah. and passes it around everybody. Customer, fellow customers are arguing whether or not it's a gun or a gub. Great movie. Great movie. One of my favourite movies, no doubt. Now, the only reason I didn't go for that finey was because I thought I'd already done Bananas a couple of weeks ago and I couldn't just do Woody Allen all the way through. And this is a great movie. It's a serious movie. I'll just run you through some of the other movies that came out in 1969. Some great movies. Easy Rider, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They shoot horses, don't they? That's a ripping movie. Paint Your Wagon. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Uh, but I have gone with, uh, this is a terrific movie and very dark. Uh, unusually sort of dark for even this time, I would have thought. I'm talking about Midnight Cowboy with uh, Dustin Hoffman and John Voight as the leads, directed by John Schlesinger. And uh, it is the story of uh, John Voight's character, Joe Buck, a young Texan cowboy who gets sick of what he's doing and decides to head to New York City and become, of all things, a male prostitute. Um, It uh, doesn't quite go according to plan, and uh, he meets um, broken, sort of having nowhere to go, meets Enrico Rizzo, otherwise known as Ratso, Dustin Hoffman's character, who's a con man. Their introduction is uh, when Ratso uh, sort of cons him out of $20 and says he's going to introduce him to a pimp. And uh, it's not a pimp, it's a completely mad homosexual guy who um, uh, he freaks him out a bit. He ends up, John Voigt, uh, sorry, Joe Buck, gets locked out of his hotel room Um in desperation for money, uh, gets a, a blowjob from a kid in a cinema who then turns out to have no money, um, finally sees Ratso and decides to extract his horrible revenge. And um, after a bit of uh, physical intimidation, uh, Ratso uh, offers him the uh, apartment that he's squatting in and they end up sharing an apartment and becoming sort of uh, buddies out of necessity and uh, each learning a bit about each other's troubled lives along the way. We see some horrible sort of flashbacks about Joe Buck's upbringing. But it's just really well done. It's dark, but it's, you know, the sort of developing relationship between the two. And you have some, you know, a lot of empathy for both characters. Two magnificent acting performances too. 
Pity John Voight's gone completely crazy, eight bonkers in his old age. Um, and in the end, Ratso gets very sick, and he's just fantasised about uh, lying on a beach in Miami, begs Joe to put him on the bus to Miami. So Joe accompanies him on the bus, and uh, of course, sadly, on the bus, Ratso passes away. But uh, it's a buddy movie, a buddy movie with a real difference, and it's got a real big heart, and uh, certainly doesn't glorify life in New York City. I think it's a a wonderful movie with a good musical score too. Have you seen it? Yeah, of course I have. Do you I, like it? Love it. And that famous last scene on the bus with Nilsson's Everybody's Talking At Me is an, one of, uh, if there was a list, and I'm sure there are lists of famous scenes, iconic movie moments, that would have to make the top 100 or whatever. Because yeah. it, it's just so memorable and the music and the moment all fit each other. I love there's one moment that really sums up Ratso's Ratso is a New York rat. He 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 is a rat. He he lives in the you know the back streets and the tenant tenement buildings of New York and uh, you know crossing the street in New York is always fraught with danger. And it's a, he uses a real New York expression. He's walking and the cars are still coming at him and he's walking between the cars and he slams his hand down on the bonnet and goes, I'm walking here. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll have to be quick on this one. TV show. Okay. The retrospective nature of political correctness would have some people shirk away from naming this. I loved it growing up. Sunday night for me, we got takeaway as a family. I was always excited when it was Chinese. We used to get it not in takeaway containers. We used to come. We had to take our own saucepans, and that was the way. But it would be coming home and watching. There'd be Disney, Disney World, or Dis, you know that TV show from Disneyland. Yeah, Disney World. Um, there, some news was watched because I remember after the news was something called London Magazine or something. Oh, London. Yeah, yeah. So my father must have got it on the ABC for a few minutes, but then back to Channel O for the Benny Hill Show. But Benny, I loved his characters. Um, the obviously, I'm not even going to talk about what, looking the, that through the prism of today because yeah, they were sexist, racist. No, were they? Not to me. Not to anybody. They were funny. Uh, he had a Chinese character, for example, and I just found this so funny as a child, as he as a, as a child, because he was being interviewed. Um, the Chinese character, he was at from the embassy or something, and he said, "Oh, my wife. Where's your wife?" Interviewed by the great Henry McGee or whatever his name was. Um, uh, she's at a raid in a hostile area. Oh, that's terrible! At a raid in a hostile area. No, at a raid in a hostile area. Pardon? Adelaide, Australia! <laughs> and I just found it very clever as a young person. Um, yes, there are a lot of chases with plantally, scantily clad women, but he wrote many clever songs, you know, often with a Western t- twang. Betty Hill was incredibly popular and I loved him, and it started in England in 1969. All right, uh, I'm going the comedy route as well. Route. Uh-huh. Um, Fred Scuttle here. Sorry, and uh, this, if you saw this when it debuted in Australia, you would have, like everyone else, just gone, what on earth? But uh, it launched an iconic comic brand. I'm talking about Monty Python's Flying Circus. First um, aired in 1969. 
There are only four series of the show, and uh, but a lot of incredible, uh, what have become iconic comedy sketches. Forty-five episodes over four seasons of Monty Python's Flying Circus, and for the two people on Earth who haven't ever seen any of it, a mixture of sketches, sight gags, absurdist humour. Um, and you look at it now and you think, yeah, so what? Well, for its time, absolutely cutting edge, you know, woven together with, you know, sort of things that didn't sort of fit in a traditional sort of format of a TV show. But the imagery and, and artwork of Terry Gilliam played a big part, didn't it? Correct. And there were five of them. He was one. And as you say, that was his sort of, uh, what's the word, portfolio. Uh, John Cleese, Eric Idle, uh, Michael Palin and... Of course, now the sadly the late Terry Jones all became absolute household names on the back of their debut Ch- here. Chapman, and, uh, Graham Chapman. I think he might have joined them a bit later. He's, he's also no longer with us, is he? No, he he passed on a while ago. Actually, no, you're right. Graham Chapman was there the whole time. I, sh- I forgot to write him down. Uh, thanks for reminding me. But um, anyone who's seen some of their short sketches, and I watched a couple. Last night, I was thinking, what are the sort of quintessential... So that's what I want to ask you. Many sketches. Which one on the TV shows do you remember? Um, Two uh, stick in my head. One is the upper-class twit of the year, where uh, four upper-class twits sort of stage various contests. Uh, It finishes with them having to shoot themselves, uh, which they take them some time to do. Um, The philosopher's football match always stuck in my head. Uh, the gangs of angry grannies going around beating up people. Uh, that that sketch is actually on YouTube in in high definition. It's absolutely crystal clear, even Great. though it was filmed in '69. So have a look at it. Um, and the one I watched last night, the funniest joke in the world. Yep. Uh, do you remember that one? Yep. So there's a joke writer, and he writes a joke that's so funny, he laughs himself to death. And yep. then his mum comes in and finds him, and she reads it, and she dies. And then the uh, the power of the funniest joke is harnessed by the Allies in World War Two, and you see the Allied troops coming emerging from behind their cover to march towards the Germans, reading in German a joke, yep. and the Germans all start pissing themselves and collapsing and, and dying, laughing. And um, uh, the punchline at the end, I don't mind giving it away, but uh, they said uh, it was much more successful than the uh, uh, joke from which Neville Chamberlain returned. Um, about you know peace in our time, and uh, the Germans then tried it unsuccessfully, and you see this footage of Hitler, and the subtitles underneath, you see him ranting, and the subtitle underneath says, "My dog has no nose," and then the troops respond, "How does he smell? Awful." <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Uh, there's heaps of stuff on YouTube if you haven't seen it. I reckon everyone's seen it though. But a, a lot and, of uh, a lot of the sketches that they became famous for on record and audio, yeah. not necessarily part of the TV show. Um, I know uh, the cheese shop was, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was, yep. and the uh, the dead parrot the, the, sketch. Dead parrot sketch, very famous. Yep. Um, in the philosopher's football match, did they sing the philosopher's song? I love the philosopher's song. No, no, that's the uh, philosoph- uh, philosophy uh, philosophy department of the University yeah. of Woolmaloo. No, the, philosopher's football it, match has Socrates et al. playing a game yeah, of soccer. Because I, I remember the. I don't know if that was the department at Woolmaloo, but just g'day, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Bruce. Bruce, 
And that perpetuated the belief that we all call our children, male children, Bruce. All right. Uh, that is vinyl and video for this week. 1969, an iconic year for movies, music and TV. Uh, I think it's time we ranted, finally. On Footyology, the rant of. No messing around. Straight into the rants this week. I'm going to count you in, Finey. Three, two, one, rant. The Game Changers, the glitzy documentary extolling the virtues of veganism, is proving to be just that, with converts appearing by the hundreds, if not thousands, worldwide. Now, this program, or if you haven't seen it, has a number of high-profile people, including incredibly Arnold Schwarzenegger, speaking about giving up meat partially or altogether. It's uh, a production by those people who strongly protect animals, and there's more than just veganism for health in this documentary. It also branches into the effect that eating meat has on our planet in terms of climate change and of uh, taking endangered species out of uh, somehow the white and black rhinoceros get involved in this documentary. I'm not a vegan and it will not turn me into a vegan. I am not one of those people, one of those carnivores or omnivores who by dint of definition, hate vegetarians or vegans, each to their own, even though there is a certain militarism about vegans who want to spread the word and are uncomfortable when the rest of us eat meat. I say, live and let live. But what I do want to make very clear here is a bit of a misconception that sees many people turning to veganism for the wrong reason. Misconception number one, if you're looking for weight loss, veganism is not your first choice. It's not your second, third or fourth. If you've got 10 choices, it should run about 10th. The vegan diet advocated in this program, whilst doesn't, whilst a traditional vegan diet doesn't have the obvious fatty products like cream and milk, etc., does have many high-fat and fried foods. Now, if somebody is overweight, they will, if they follow the vegan diet strictly as advocated on Game Changers, lose weight. But it's a Trojan horse because they'll be losing weight because they're cutting their sugar intake, not because they're no longer eating meat and animal products. So fact number one, it's not a weight loss diet. There may be health benefits beyond weight loss, but weight loss, no. And number two, again, suggested occasionally in this program, not heavily promoted, but a lot of people believe by not having meat in their diet, they will save money. Forget it. Veganism is expensive. It seems to be the plaything play of the upwardly mobile, upper-class former yuppie. Somebody who has tried many diets previously and with, with clogged arteries now desperately looking to veganism. But basically, vegan restaurants, vegan food products are more expensive than standard food products. Incredibly, a, a tempe substitute meat dish where you might be paying $40 for a steak, can cost even more without the meat. So, if it suits you morally, it may even suit you in terms of your overall health profile. More power to you to take on veganism. But be assured, you're not losing weight and you're not saving money. That's a very illuminating rant. Uh, I learnt a lot. I should mention that my oldest and dearest friend, I won't mention his name, his initials are Mark Miller, has, after watching this program, for the last seven months, adopted the vegan stance. How's it going? 
he likes it. He feels some health benefits. He also, the other thing is, if you are passionate about food, like I love food of different nationalities and types, you can't have a vegan diet. He's impassionate about food. For him, it's fuel. Mm. It suits him. But in consultation with him, I made I came to the content of the rant. He made it very clear it's expensive because there's some opportunism by suppliers and it's no weight loss program, which I knew previously from uh, work that I've done with Craig Harper and other sports no, scientists. That's interesting. So I thought it was there are benefits, awesome. but those are not two of them. Okay. No, very uh, educational rant. Uh... Not a, a rant, more an info Peace. Well, this is a rant. I love um, your rants. As you'd expect, and uh, I'd like you to count me in. I know that I'm going to be pissed off because my name's Finey. Away you go. I pissed... Oh, you'll be pissed off. Sorry. Count me in. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off with men's tennis, Finey. Yeah, okay. It was a pretty good Australian Open. There was plenty of drama, some ripping five-setters, Serena Williams eating spaghetti marinara during a changeover, and Sharon Streslecki getting a gig as a ball girl. The women did their bit, another new winner of a major added to the honour boards. But what do we get at the end of it all? Novak bloody Djokovic. Again, talk about Groundhog Day. Three men have won 15 of the last 17 Australian Open titles. And no, no prizes for guessing which three. And one of the other two won so long ago, he was handing over the trophy to last night's winner. Look, Novak, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal have been an amazing trio of champions and hats off to them. But their run started so long ago, it was actually back in the days when people were still wearing hats. Top hats. I was doing a bit of research for this rant, Finey, so I thought I'd better dig up some old highlights of their early days. I couldn't find any early stuff of Djokovic until I dug my old beta videotapes out of the garage, and there it was, a recording of the Joker winning his first Australian Open. It was funny because I'd left the ads in when they went to a break, and they had this big spiel about the upcoming AFL season and how Fitzroy could really spring a surprise. Not only that, there wasn't a single cross-promotion for a reality TV show. Yep, that's how long ago it was. Mind you, even that was easier than finding any early Federer action. Forget beta tapes. For him, I had to contact the National Film and Sound Archives to get a copy of an old Cinesound newsreel. Roger had the long pants on and a wooden racket. The voiceover bloke sounded like an old World War I fighter pilot. And the whole thing was sponsored by Lucky Strike Cigarettes, recommended by six out of ten doctors for their life-giving properties. As for Nadal, he burst onto the scene long enough ago that people were getting their rocks off about how much he looked like Justin Kaczynski. Look, I have to admit, I've waxed and waned on tennis since I grew up watching everything as a kid. Those were the days, Finey. Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe. But not just them. Real Aussie heroes like Nuke, the Supermax, Phil Dent, John Marks and Dale the Animal Collings. And celebrated Australian opener winners of years gone by like Roscoe Tanner, Brian Teacher and Johan Creek. They would have given the big three a run for their money. No, not really. But at least they mixed it up a bit. It's just becoming all too like the old Roadrunner cartoons. Nick Kyrgios, Alexander Zverev, Dominic Team, they're just tennis's version of Wiley E. Coyote. Yeah, sure, there'll be some ingenious plot to bring the stars of the show undone. Maybe a few surprises courtesy of the Acme Tennis Weaponry Company. But you know what's going to happen in the end? It's all going to backfire, blow up in their faces, and Novak, Roger and Rafa will go off on their merry way. They're tennis's version of the Roadrunner, Finey, but frankly, after 15-odd years of this show, I'm getting a little tired of the bloody meep-meep. Again, very well written. You're a good writer. A lot, yeah, thanks. Uh, obvious, used to be a living in it. Obviously, um, 
before people go scurrying for their record books and calculate that Fitzroy were well and truly out of the competition when the Joker won his first uh, Australian Open. That was a uh, tongue-in-cheek yeah. satirical Yes, piece. I think they call it comic licence. But it was very well written. I would say this. I, I think we're down to two. I don't think Roger can win one. I think he's... You reckon he's gone? Not gone, but slowly age and... Look, he, he fingernail survived Millman and Tennis Sangren. What a name. <laughs> Great name. But injury or not, he got swept by Djokovic. And I think I, I, I would be very confident to say that Dominic Team has gone past him. So it's going to be very... He can't win on clay. I, I don't think he'll win another one. Yeah, well, uh, is is team the new sort of successor to the throne, or are we going to have a, a period where we don't have these champions who hang around forever? And there was someone reminded me last night there was a very brief period between the end of the sort of Sampras Agassi era and the start of the Federer, where we had um, you know Richard Krajicek and yeah. uh, who else was in that boat? There was Corda. Yeah, people. Oh, that's right, Peter without the second E. But with some drugs. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, uh, speaking of team, I was listening to Team Team and they were saying it's t- it's time time. It's So it's time time. Oh, did you see the people Is wearing... it Team Team or time time? Uh, did you see the people with the T-shirts, Carpe Team? Is that clever? I thought it was clever. Don't you think that's clever? Uh, seize the team. Yeah. I, I do know this, that on Saturday... The Tasmanian Derby was taken out by a surprise winner, Vamos Rafa, oh, yeah. ten dollars. Yeah. And then on Saturday night at Albion Park Trots, a regular runner that never wins called something like Go Novak or something Novak won and paid twenty seven dollars. Uh, Omen bets. All right, uh, time to leave it there, Fanny. Of course, without my phone, we have run way too long over time. So, uh, big thank you to our sponsors again. Well, I'll tell you how long we've been. We've gone over time. Andrews Hamburgers now celebrating their 90th anniversary. <laughs> the great Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street. If it was their 90th anniversary, they'd be the same beautiful product, and it is a great product. And they do have cans of Passiona. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. So they do have Passiona. It's on in stock now. Okay. And West Point Constructions with the heroic Nick Spartels at yes. the helm. And uh, if you missed that, go back to the start of this podcast. Uh, heroic deeds indeed from our very own Nick Spartels. So uh, well done, Nick. That is uh, that is a fantastic story and we hope you are suitably honoured. We're suitably honoured to uh, have your company Uh, Thanks for joining us once again. We'll be back again same time next week. And uh, our year in vinyl and video is 1969. And so much we could have chosen, Finey. But uh, your turn this week. So you chose Johnny Cash live at, uh, what prison was it again? San San Quentin. And uh, what track are you going to choose to leave us with? I bypass Walk the Line. I miss a boy named Sue. And even though it was at San Quentin Prison... His huge hit, the brilliant Folsom City Blues. Pardon me, Folsom Prison Blues will take us out. So over to you, the man in black. We'll see you next week. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. And time keeps dragging on 
But that train keeps rolling on down to San Anton. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. I bet there's rich folks eating in a fancy dining car They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free But those people keep them moving And that's what tortures me Down the line, far from Folsom Prison, that's where I want to stay. And I'd let that lonesome whistle blow my blues away. Mm -hmm. 